Hey, you're listening to The Zen Courses Show, episode 56, aka the Design Geek episode. Welcome to The Zen Courses Show, the show for online course creators who care about building actionable, meaningful, and profitable online courses. If you're a solo entrepreneur, tech geek, or creative, The Zen Courses Show is the place to get expert advice for creating your online course, overcoming overwhelm, and growing a balanced business. To get the full experience, sign up at zencourses.co, where you'll get access to free lessons, resources, and more. Again, that's zencourses.co. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Zen Courses Show. My guest today is Jared Drysdale, designer, author, consultant, and founder of StudioFellow.com. If that wasn't enough, he's also a recent course creator. We are here to discuss his journey as well as his course theory sprints. Jared, welcome to the Zen Courses Show. Hi, Janelle. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm very excited to chat with you. So thank you for being here. Can you start by telling us a bit more about yourself and the work you do? Yeah. So I've been a designer for 10 or 11 years, 12 years, something like that. And um, I jumped around a lot early in my career to different agencies for maybe the first five or six years. And um, eventually, after working a few jobs and kind of working my way up that ladder a little bit, I did kind of got the itch to start my own business. I read a book called Getting Real by uh, the 37, what they were then called the 37 Signals. And uh, I kind of got the itch to do my own business. And so I quit my job, started freelancing and working on my own stuff. And the rest is kind of history, I guess. That's cool. (laughs) So So where are you from? I tried to to do some research and uh, it's nothing on your site, or at least I didn't find it. So where are you from? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I moved around a lot, actually. Uh, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and I went to college in Oklahoma City, and then I lived in Chicago for a little while, and now I'm in Denver. Okay, okay, cool. Very nice. So yeah, you call yourself a digital hobbit on your site. I thought that was <laughs> yeah. funny. So Yeah, yeah. I have a, a home office and it's actually in my finished basement. So I, I just think it's kind of funny that I, I work in a basement. <laughs> it's actually all right. It's not like a hobbit hole really, but <laughs> No, you don't have the cool door with the handle in the middle, like Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. It is time for the rapid five. I've got five quick questions to help listeners get to know you. You ready? Sure. Okay. Number one, cats or dogs? Cats. I have two cats. Very cool. And number two, what is your favorite song of all time? Oh, my favorite song of all time? I don't think I could possibly pick, (laughs) but I will tell you a couple of my favorite bands. I'm an indie rocker and I like uh, the Flaming Lips, Fugazi, Radiohead, stuff like that. I'm actually in a music video for the Flaming Lips when I was living in Oklahoma City. Yeah. (laughs) One of their music videos, I'm one of the kids like dancing in the background. I was like, 19 or 20 years old at the time. So that's cool. There's a little tidbit for you. (laughs) I read that you play guitar. So, but I did not know that you're in Flaming Lips video. That's very (laughs) cool. Very cool. All right. Number three, name your go to comfort food. Go to comfort food is definitely pizza. You know what? You're the first person to say pizza. That's surprising. I just realized that. (laughs) I can't get good Chicago-style pizza here, but that would be my go-to. But in Denver, I've got to go with the the chains. Okay, okay. (laughs) Four, if you could have one superpower but no one knew about it, what would it be? 
one superpower, but no one knew about it. I think nobody can know. Probably flying. I mean, why not? You know, you can go fly around in the sky, have enjoy incredible views and do your own thing. Nobody needs to know about it. That sounds pretty cool to me. So here's the thing. My thing with flying, because that's a popular answer. How do you Uh keep that secret? The thing is, nobody can know. How do you fly around in secret? I think you're so high up, nobody can see you, right? Like, you're just like a tiny little speck. Of, I mean, I'm imagining flying really high, not like, Super high. you know, like airplane high, you know? Okay, so. okay. gotcha. All right, <laughs> I'll go with it. Number five, what is the hardest lesson you've learned as an entrepreneur? Hmm. The hardest lesson, I think, is that just because you build it doesn't mean people will want it or want to use it. I think that's the hardest thing. When I first started out, it was uh, the first business I made. It was just this idea I had, and I was really excited about it. And I thought, yeah, people are going to love this, and they're going to benefit from it. But I learned after about a year of working on it that uh, just because you have an idea and do a good job of building it doesn't mean that it's actually going to be valuable to people. You have to understand more about the people who are going to be using it. Mm-hmm. rather than just kind of arrogantly have an idea and expect people to want it, you know? Yeah, that's a valuable lesson. I think every entrepreneur who, at least everyone that kind of stays around, learns that lesson and pivots and starts listening to people and figuring out their problems and building from there. So Totally agree, yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Okay, <laughs> so what's your story, Jared? How did you come to be this digital hobbit who writes, designs, <laughs> makes courses, all of the amazing things that you do? How did you get here? Well, thank you for saying that, but <laughs> uh, that's very nice of you. Uh, yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, I worked at agencies, design agencies for a while, and I ended up working at a big agency in Chicago, and then uh, we kind of got, my wife and I kind of got tired of the city life, and we wanted to move to to Colorado, so I got a job out in Boulder, worked there for a little while, and I was like, man, I'm just tired of having a boss. Mm -hmm. I want to do my own thing. I want to make my own product, and instead of lining somebody else's pockets with my skills, I want to line my own pockets, right? So I, I took the leap, like I said, and I started a new software business. And it was a online grade book for teachers. So a lot of right now, uh, I don't know if there's many of them that are still around. This was almost close to eight or nine years ago. Hmm. But there were a lot of new startups in the education space. So my idea was that there's a lot of controversy around the education system and teachers were in a lot of ways being scrutinized and kind of blamed for the way that education was heading. So my idea was to build a software tool to help them track student performance so that they could, and then, you know, serve up reports so that they could go in and show their bosses or parents or whoever, hey, the students are growing, you know? Mm -hmm. So it had these kind of almost analytics types of features built into it. Um, And I built that on my own while I was freelancing. So I learned like Ruby on Rails and a bunch of new programming stuff that was new to me at the time and built that um, just kind of on the side while I was freelancing. And I worked on that on and off for about a year. And I only ever got five paying customers. And I learned some really hard lessons. Like I was saying earlier, that lesson of you can't just have an idea and expect people to like it. You know, basically what I did is I had this idea, then I went and tried to find people persuading them to buy it, really not understanding much about the audience or what their needs were or what their real situation was. So 
that was a really hard lesson. I worked really hard on that and it was definitely a, a labor of love and it was tough to shut that down. But that really taught me a lot about how to start a business and how to understand your audience and how to, you know, make sure that you're checking all of your concepts with what people really need. Mm-hmm. And after that, I took a entrepreneurship class with Amy Hoy. Yeah, It's called 30 by 500. And I learned a lot from Amy about uh, finding audiences and doing audience research and looking for pain points and things like that. And after I took that course, I wrote a book called Bootstrapping Design. And that book ended up over a couple of years making about six digits in sales. Uh, It had, I think, about 30,000 in the first two months and six digits total over the, uh, the first couple of years. And that was the thing that really kind of kicked off my business, my mm-hmm. product business. And um, I've ever since that book, I've been working to kind of replicate that success. And I haven't had as big of a success since then. I've written three more books and now I'm doing a course. But uh, because of that book, uh, I was able to kind of build up a following, a little bit of an audience on my newsletter and just kind of keep going. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. So, I mean, you said a lot of great things there. One of the things that I hope resonates with people is just the importance of validating an idea. It's going to, a lot of people are scared of validating because they're like, I don't want people to tell me no. I don't want to hear that, that, you know, it's a bad idea. And the thing is you want to hear no before you invest all the time and energy in building the thing. And then exactly. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, let me tell you, it really sucks to work on something for months and then to realize you built the wrong thing or you built something yeah. nobody wants. That sucks a lot more than somebody telling you at the beginning, I don't like that idea. I wouldn't use that. Yep. You know, yep. it's way worse to build it first. So, uh, yeah, I totally agree. Cool. So on your site, you say several times you say design is a means to an end. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think that design should be a tool that people use to accomplish something. Mm-hmm. So when, as a designer, I'm always looking for what is the outcome that my clients or my customers want. You know, I think a lot of times visual designers, and I'm a visual designer, uh, we, we focus a lot on the details of a design and trying to make it look really nice. Yeah. But then when we deliver that design or we get it out in front of customers or users, people are like, well, why does it look that way? Why did you do it that way? I don't understand this. And so you need to be really intentional about how you make those decisions about your design so that they're building towards a goal or an outcome or connecting with a specific group of people. And design can't be just this thing that you slap out there because you like it. It has to be something you create for other people. Gotcha. Yeah, totally agree. So you say, well, I have a question. So I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm thinking, you know, there's there's a lot of different camps of designers, so to speak. So there's designers I've talked to who it seems their sole focus is they're really focused on making stuff pretty. And like Mm -hmm. you said, you know, there's there's that side of it. But there's also, okay, does it work? There's the form and function argument. And then yeah. there's there's a camp of designers who are very focused on that user experience and uh, and making sure that that is is what it needs to be. So, mm-hmm. you know, where's the balance? And I'm asking this because there are a lot of course platforms out there, and they run the gamut. You have a lot of you have platforms that they may not look the prettiest, but they get the job done. 
Then you right. have platforms that are kind of in the middle. And then you have platforms that have all of the, the bells and whistles and the pretty stuff, but they're kind of lacking in the functionality department. So as a designer, I'm curious, what's your take on the the best approach? What should what should designers be doing when they're creating a new product? What is paramount? Is it making it look good or is it making sure that it does the job even if it doesn't look great? Yeah, that's a great question. So I am a generalist. So I have a lot of different skill sets and that makes that kind of affects my perspective, obviously. I think people who really specialize in visuals are going to be more concerned with visuals, right? And people who specialize in UX are going to be more concerned with that. I'm a generalist, so I, my answer is do all of it um, <laughs> and do just as much as you can get away with of each of those, you know? So I am a big advocate. I think the UX movement, and I call it a movement because uh, when I started, nobody knew what UX was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, it's kind of a newer thing, even though it's been around for a while. But uh, user experience is really great because it encourages designers to do research to have reasons for the way we design things. And so while I'm not really a, I don't follow design thinking or jobs to be done or any of those higher level kind of UX strategies, I do user research. I do it kind of my own way. And then I use that to inform the decisions about my design. So I think every designer should be doing that. And when it comes to which course platform to use or how you're going to design your product, I think that you need to be making those decisions based on that initial research you do. I'm always saying that we designers, like we like to jump into the fun, exciting part of the design and get to the the visuals because that's the stuff that we, at least many designers get really excited about. That's the part I get excited so about. True. Yeah. But if you skip those early phases where you're researching and trying to understand your audience and figuring out the details of what you're trying to build and why, what you're trying to accomplish at the end of the project, if you skip that stuff, then the fun stuff, the the visual parts that you create really aren't as useful and other people aren't going to appreciate it as much as you do because you're not creating something that's useful to them or, you know, it's not something that they're going to understand in the same way you do as a designer. So I think that uh, research aspect is really critical. Even if you aren't a UX expert, I'm not, but even if you, uh, I, it's still really critical to have that as part of your projects, whether you're doing freelancing or making a course. Yeah, yeah. Research is so important. Like you said, whatever you're doing, just doing that initial research. Okay, let's bring it back to your course. We are here to talk about your course. It's called Theory Sprints, and you just wrapped up your launch. So how did it go? Yeah, it went really well. So uh, the course, this is the first time I've launched it. It's brand new. I kept registration open for about a week. The first few days of the launch, I offered a discount, and there were several different discounts depending on where people found it. Publicly, there was 10% off. On my email newsletter, there was 15% off. And then I also had a couple of other discounts for customers of previous projects or previous products and things like that. So there were a variety of discounts in there, and they all ended kind of on the same day. And then registration stayed open for the discounts ended on Tuesday. So it was Saturday to Tuesday that the discounts were open. And then the course closed again the following Saturday. So a week total of registrations and I ended up with, I'm looking at my uh, data here, 67, 66 new customers, 66 new students total, and about 11,000 gross revenue. Hey, that's a, so was this your first course? Because I know you've written four books, but is this your first course? Yeah, first course. So that's that's a great start. Congratulations. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you. 
I'm really happy with it. It's a great start. Uh, this course has been a ton of work to get out the door and seeing people in there using it and benefiting from it is honestly the best part of it for me because <laughs> I've been working on this so long. And then I also had nine other students who were early access students that I invited back in February, and they've been kind of getting content as I produce it over the last few months. So I have about 75 total in there. Cool. Very nice. So when, well, first question, you launched on a Saturday and I remember seeing you cause I follow you on Twitter and I was like, he's launching on a Saturday. I've never seen anybody do that. How did yeah. that work out for you? Why did you pick Saturday? Well, I've always launched my products on like a Tuesday or a Thursday and I wanted to try a weekend this time because this is such a big product. I felt like people were really going to need to dig into it before they would make a decision. So I see higher open rates on the weekends on my newsletter. So my theory was that if I launched it on a Saturday and closed it on a Tuesday, I would get the best of both worlds, right? Yeah. People would find out about it on the weekend, maybe have a little bit of time to read up about it. And then by Tuesday, sometime in there, they would have a chance to sign up if they thought it was right to them. So, and then if they missed the Tuesday discount, they still had a few extra days to sign up. So. Uh, I thought that launching on a Saturday, while I might miss some of the people who only look at their email while they're at work, I still see those higher open rates on the weekend. So my hope was that that would give them a little bit of extra time to look into it before they had to decide. And is that how it played out? Did you see a, a big click rate on the weekends or how did it work out for you? Statistically? Yeah, I did. Actually, I saw most of my sales that weekend. So on Saturday and Sunday was the bulk of the sales. And then I saw nothing that Monday and then a little spike again on Tuesday. And that was really probably 80 to 90% of the sales for the week. And then I saw kind of a trickle after the discount ended. Yeah. A few people still purchased and then a couple sales right before I shut it down. And that was it. I was kind of thinking I might get another spike at the end of the week on the, the Saturday when it closed. And I didn't really see that. I just kind of saw a trickle until it closed. So that was really interesting. I realized that the discount the pricing pressure was more, it was greater than the time pressure, I think. So people were buying more because of the discount than they were because of the course registration closing, which was new to me. I've always had, my launches have always been, it launches and then it's available all the time, right? This is the first time I've ever done one where it actually closes down. You can only get it for a week. So yeah, that was actually kind of an experiment for me, but, uh, I found that the discount was a bigger uh, incentive for people to buy. Yeah. So it's a huge incentive that the open cart, closed cart situation is a huge incentive. But yeah. I love that. And I hope everyone is going to take heed of this, that you made a decision based on your own data, like your research of open rates and all of that stuff, because there's so many people out there who just feel overwhelmed listening to all of the tips and best practices and yeah. trying to do what everyone else does. At the end of the day, it's about you and your audience, which it's, it just sounds like you are doing everything based on that. And I love it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so critical is to kind of tune into what people are asking for and what they're doing, you know, ask them questions and listen to them, try to read between the lines, you know, and I think that's so critical in your business because as I said earlier, you know, if you just do it your own way and don't really think about the people who are actually going to use your products, it can really come back to bite you. But yeah, and then the other great thing I should mention about this launch is that 
uh, in the past, you know, when I've launched eBooks and things like that, uh, as I mentioned, they're kind of evergreen. So it launches, I'm hoping for a bunch of sales right when it launches, but then also you see kind of a trickle of sales and mm -hmm. sometimes that can really add up. But with this product, because I'm only opening registration for a week at a time, I can have multiple launches. So yeah. next time I open up the course, I can try to launch it on a Tuesday or Thursday and, and see, okay, how did that do compared to opening it on a Saturday, right? Yeah. So having that limited availability gives me a lot of control and it, it lets me test different variables each time I open it up. So that's obviously I've just done one launch, so I don't know what the next test is going to be or how that's going to work out. Unfortunately, I can't share that with you. But uh, that's kind of my plan moving forward is to you know test little aspects of that each time I open it up. Testing is is fun. I love it. It's and yeah, it's good stuff. So a lot of people are afraid yeah. of it. Don't be. It's it's the fun part because you get to figure out what works for you and your audience. So right. yeah. All right. So let's get back. Let's talk about the course. What, you know, I know you said you just wrapped up your launch um, and you've got about 75 people in the course. Where did the idea for this course come from? Yeah, that's a great question. So this has been, I think, a long time in the making. I uh, the, the first book that I mentioned that I wrote, Bootstrapping Design, mm -hmm. that was a design book for programmers who are building their own software businesses. So very niche, very targeted niche. And what I found after I wrote that book is that all kinds of other people that weren't my target audience were buying it. Yeah. I had designers buying the book. And I was like, man, like you should know this stuff already. <laughs> this is like a foundational design book. I can't believe designers are buying this. And then, you know, I would get programmers buying it and marketing people buying it and just all different types of audiences buying it. And I found that over time, I had a really hard time understanding, you know, who is my audience anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. So I started experimenting with ways to kind of narrow that down, narrow my focus, uh, rather than trying to make a product for everybody, which was a temptation because I had so many different people kind of paying attention after the book. Uh, so I did some experiments. I launched a framework, a, a coding framework that was like kind of for, again, for programmers who think of it like a UI kit. Yeah. If you've seen any of the like flat design UI kits or anything like that, I launched one of those and it was called Cascade. That was about maybe a year after the first book. And it was meant to be for that same core programmer audience. That product didn't work out too well. I got a handful of sales and then nothing. I relaunched it like six or seven times, really struggled to get much traction with that. So I went back to writing books and I wrote a book for non-designers about design trying to teach them how do the design process works, what designers do, trying to kind of demystify design mm -hmm. for people who work alongside designers. Again, that didn't work too well. So I pivoted really? again to focus on designers specifically. Okay. And since then, I've seen a lot more success. Wow. So you invested time in, you didn't just like experiment, Jared, <laughs> you created no. products. And, I and did, yes. you know, with with each one, what some people would say was a failure, used it as a learning experience to narrow down your audience. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I should say, I, I mean, I want to caveat, add a caveat there. So that Cascade, that UI kit product that I built, that made about $10,000 when I launched it. And then I struggled to make any more sales after that. So I wouldn't really call that a failure per mm -hmm. se. I mean... I, I guess over the long term, I had hoped that it would become more than that. And so maybe in that sense, it was a failure, but I still made some money on it. So that was great. Then that book, the non-designer, the book for non-designers, I don't remember the exact sales. It made several thousand dollars, not a big 
product by any means, but again, it's not like I lost money on it. So, gotcha. you know, I, I want to temper that because I think when I was first starting out, I would have killed to make two or $3,000, right? Yeah. Like that would have been a failure to me. So I think that's important to to say and to acknowledge that because I don't want to sound like I'm too elite, like I'm only looking for <laughs> six digits or something. But, you know, I, I'm looking for products that I can build over the long term. And the reason I stopped on those was because I felt like I'm not going to be able to make any more sales on these, you know? So hmm. I was looking for something that I could keep building on. And uh, then I wrote another book after the the book for non-designers. The I guess that was the third book I'd written. I lose track sometimes. I've written four. <laughs> One of them's free. So this was the third paid book. Uh, it, it was called Off the Chopping Block. And it was a book about uh, how to negotiate with clients, how to handle revision requests, mm-hmm. specifically for designers. And that book, did not I, I tried an experiment with that and set a really low price point. It was about $19, I think, for the book. And I saw a lot of sales volume, but the uh, I didn't make a lot of revenue on it because the price was so low. So that was a, a really good experiment, and it proved to me that I can reach designers. So I decided that des- from that point on, I decided that designers would be my core audience. So I've been working on building that up. I kind of re-optimized my marketing. I changed my, I have a lead magnet that I use to build my newsletter, which is a free design book. Yeah. And I made a second edition of that and re kind of targeted, targeted the book and the content towards designers. And that worked really well. It got covered by several big design blogs and I get, uh, you know, several hundred new subscribers a month just because of that lead magnet and residual traffic that I don't even do anything to earn. And then I've just been kind of working on optimizing that marketing and engaging with uh, designers for the past year or so. And that's where the idea for Theory Sprints, the new course, Theory Sprints, came from, was, uh, you know, talking to those new people coming into my newsletter, experimenting with writing about different topics. You know, I had the book about revisions, but I've been talking about various things on the newsletter for about a year. And I'm always asking people, reply, tell me what you think about this. Is this helpful to you? And so a lot of my data just comes from conversations that I have with my audience. And that's where the product came from, uh, the new course, because I was finding that amongst my subscribers, there were a lot of people who just felt kind of stuck. Like they didn't know how they were going to get to the next step up in their career. And I would say, well, send me your portfolio. And I would, I would look at their portfolio and it would be kind of weak, you know, and I'd say, have you read up about alignment? Have you read up about visual hierarchy and these certain design principles? And they'd be like, no, what's that? Or they would say, yes, I thought I was already using that. And I was like, well, no, you're not really using that. So I started to identify in my audience that there were these design principles that they really weren't able to use well. So that's where the design course concept came from is I thought that the biggest value that I could provide to the designers who were on my list was, let me teach you how to use these design principles really well so you can improve your work and start advancing your career, start working towards that next milestone, whatever that is, better freelance clients or getting a better job at a better agency, stuff like that. Now, how long, because I, I think putting time frames around things helps people. When did you launch Studio Fellow? When did you launch your site? My site has been around for, wow, a long time. I think, <laughs> I think maybe 2011. And it's been different things over yeah. that time frame. So I, at first, it was pretty much completely focused around freelancing 
and then I, I, you know, I've redesigned it multiple times as my business has changed. And so for a while it was, uh, basically what it is now, you know, it's kind of, there's a consulting page, there's a page about my products and I've had several different kind of variations of that. Cool. So yeah, it's been up Six a long years. time. Yeah. And how do you, cause I know if anyone caught the, the intro, you do a lot of things, Jared. Like you do, you've you've got a podcast. You're a working designer first and foremost. Yes. Mm-hmm. You have your site. You write. You're creating products. How do you manage all of that? How do you keep everything flowing? It is really, really difficult. Let me tell you, juggling all those different things is really hard, and it's always a struggle for me. You know, I think everybody wants like a clear answer, like how do you keep all these mm-hmm. things going at once? And my only answer is. I just do it. Like I just keep going and I try to prioritize the best I can. So I, for a while after I launched that first ebook, because it was so successful, I managed to just focus on products exclusively for a while. But because I had the next couple of products didn't really make enough sales, I had to get back into consulting again. And since then I've done a lot of experimenting on what are the most efficient ways to kind of pay my bills, you know, pay my mortgage and have a kind of stable income but still have some free time on the side to work on my products and what i you know what i did at first was just hustling and trying to you know crawl job boards and asking my network for referrals and all that stuff and over time i managed to get three clients who wanted to keep working with me over the long term so i set up retainers for them and one of those clients has since left now i have two retainer clients that i've been working with uh, one of them has been two years and the other one is a year and a half. And that's been kind of my foundation of my income for the last couple of years. And I decided to do that when I found out I was going to have a baby. My wife was pregnant and I was like, oh, no, I need to make sure that my income isn't quite so spiky, you know, now that I'm having a kid. And uh, so for the past couple of years, my income has been pretty stable. I've been able to cover the bills and everything. And right now I pay all of my, you know, meet my personal budget on about four days of client work a month. And then the rest of the time I work on products and marketing and writing articles and things like that. Very nice. So you, and that's a great segue because you, you still consult and you are creating courses. Has consulting influenced you as a course creator at all? Yeah, it really has. I think that, you know, consulting because of the way I approach my consulting, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier that I'm I'm always saying, you probably see this in everything I write, you know, what is the outcome of the design? Yeah. I try to be very focused on that with my clients because I want them to see my work as helping them achieve something, helping them grow their businesses rather than just, I'm the guy who makes a quick, pretty little thing for you. And then, you know, because I found that if I'm helping them grow their businesses over the long term, they're going to work with me over the long term, right? Mm-hmm. I'm more valuable to keep working with. So that Uh, perspective of design should accomplish something has really informed my products in a lot of ways. And I think that it's also kind of carried over because I'm trying to do the same thing for my customers as I am for my clients, right? I'm trying to help my customers, the people who buy my books or my new course to achieve an outcome, right? It's not just a entertaining book about design. Some of my writing is pretty challenging and I'll, and I tell people in my articles, you need to rethink the way you're doing this because it's actually causing you to make less money. It's causing people not to respect you, things like that. And sometimes I kind of, I'm worried about saying that, but that's the way that uh, people need to 
move forward, you know? And so sometimes with my clients, I have to have moments and say, listen, this isn't the right way to do that. And I try to do the same thing with my customers. And I think that over time, people are going to get a lot more value that way. So overall, I think that's probably how the consulting has mm-hmm. affected my, my product design. Cool. Okay, going back to Theory Sprints, your course, who is the ideal learner? Who's the target learner for your course? Yeah, so the, the ideal learner is new designers. It could be anybody who just decided they want to learn design or they are kind of in the early to mid stages of their design career. So probably any designer or design learner with under five years of experience is kind of the target ideal person. But I have seen that some more experienced designers who are self-taught are buying the course just because they don't have formal design education. And some, this is a thing with designers. Sometimes uh, we feel like if you don't have a design degree, like you don't have like a certain amount of legitimacy, I guess. And you feel like maybe there are things that you missed. So people are buying the course because they're like, oh, maybe there are some things that I don't know. I can kind of round out my knowledge a little bit in case there was anything I didn't learn about when I was kind of learning on my own, you know? Mm -hmm. So I do see some people like that in there as well, but it really is mostly junior designers or people who are just starting out. And since you are so focused on outcomes, what is it that your students will be able to do after completing your course? Yeah, the outcome is using those design principles better and having a being able to deliver a better quality design at the end. So it's it's really about improving your skills as a designer and being able to produce better quality by the end of the course. How did you what are some things that you did or I should say how did you design the course so that you could achieve that outcome so that your students could get to that place that you want them to be? Yeah, yeah. So the biggest thing uh, in the course, so I took a lot of content from the course for from my first ebook to to fill out the course. And I had to rewrite a lot of it and expand upon it because the book was a little older and it was written for a different audience. So uh, the course has about 40,000, just shy of 40,000 words in it and in the written lessons. And then it also has about four hours of video content. Okay. And so I took... Uh, I guess the strategy for teaching this stuff has, there's a couple parts to it. The first part is just making sure that people know what each principle is, and that's the written lessons. So I have, uh, depending on the topic, one to two written lessons, teaching about the topic, teaching terminology, basically teaching the theory uh, just in written form. And then at the end of each topic, I have a lengthy demonstration video. And that's really the core of the course is showing not just what each principle is, but how to apply it, mm-hmm. how to actually use it. Because that was what I identified in my audience was that some people have read about each principle and they think they know it. But when I look at their work, it's pretty clear they can't actually use it. So the demonstration videos show me working on a real design and I'm just moving stuff around the screen, talking about every little change that I do and explaining how I'm using the principles, why I'm doing things the way I am. So the goal is that it teaches the students to really understand how those principles work within a real design. Like when you're sitting down at your computer, you have a blank screen. What do you do? You know, what does it look like when you work on a design? How do you actually use typography well? How do you actually use space in a design well? And how do you make decisions about each of those principles and how do they all fit together? And that's the I did a lot of research before I made this course about the design training that was out there. And I found that most of what you see is just like a talking head, really abstract theory, 
or if somebody does show themselves designing as part of design education, they fast forward through everything. So you just kind of see things flying around the screen, but you don't really understand why they move things or change things the way they do. Right. So that deeper level was what I was really trying to get at in the videos to show the students, okay, here's why you change it that way. Here's how you actually use this principle rather than just reading about it. Because I think uh, newer design students, even if, you know, I went to design school personally and I learned about some of these principles, but I never was really taught how to use them. And that's the kind of dimension that uh, my audience was missing. And that's so, where you really learn. You know, there's yeah, the information. Yeah. And every, that's the thing that I think separates, okay, course, course creators or teachers from the ones that are exceptional is teaching people the how and the why. Because a lot of people focus on the what. And you can, you can honestly get the what from anywhere a lot yeah. of times. But it's going deeper and learning, okay, why did you do that? Why did you move that element there? Or in my case, why did you put that survey in the course right there to how to get it done and making sure that that knowledge transfers, which is really when learning happens. So I'm glad to hear that. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just geeking out over here. Don't mind me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. And so far, uh, the students have really liked those videos. I was a little nervous about them, to be honest, because they are long. One of them is uh, an hour and a half, I think. Wow. It's the longest one in the course. <laughs> and, you know, some of them, many of them are 20 to 30 minutes. And it's just a, a video of my screen and me moving stuff around the screen and talking about it. And if you watch, it's like it's not very entertaining. But yeah. this is the kind of stuff that you need to see to really improve. I mean, it kind of mirrors, in my mind at least, the experiences I had at those ad agencies, at those design agencies, when I would have a creative director sit at my desk and say, move it there, mm -hmm. see how it looks better. And, you know, if you are on your own or if you're teaching yourself, you don't really have somebody to look over your shoulder and help you that way. So my hope is that these demonstrations, while it's not quite the same as somebody telling you what to do to your own design, at least it serves as an example of what, uh, how you can work on one type of project yeah, and people will able to at least start to kind of adapt those ideas to their own projects, ideally. Um, and then I guess the other, to, to finish answering your question, the other learning strategies I use, I think there's two more. The first is that I'm really careful in the course to, uh, to restrict what my students learn. So in the, I have this kind of welcome lesson in the course. And in that lesson, I say, here's what you're going to learn ignore everything else. Don't go read about responsive design or atomic design or design systems or design thinking or any of these other high level design strategies that you see on every design blog. Ignore that stuff because it's too hard for you. You need to learn the fundamentals first. And it's, uh, I think that some people probably think I'm a little crazy that I'm not teaching how to create a mobile first, you know, responsive web design in a design course. But it's because you have to really understand how to use space and alignment and grids and things like that well before you can really create a responsive design. Because a responsive design is actually three or four designs, not just one design, because it's you have to reshuffle your design for each screen size, right? Mm -hmm. So, And if you can't create just one design, well, you're not going to be able to create those four. So you have to master those fundamentals first. And that, I think, has been a really key differentiator in my course one of the early access students said that was one of the most useful parts for him. It kind of freed him up from that overwhelm that you get yeah. when you're learning a new topic, like 
well, which thing should I learn? You know, there's so many things out there and everywhere you look, somebody's saying like, this strategy is really critical. If you ignore this, you're a horrible designer. And, you know, so having somebody to say, just focus on these ideas, um, he said that it helped him. So I'm hoping, we'll see what the other students say, but I hope that that kind of distilled focus will help students really focus on the things that will help them improve more quickly. And then I guess the other thing that I wanted to mention was the course concludes with practice projects. Mm -hmm. So I haven't actually released this yet. Um, it's coming as a free update to my students, but it will be basically 10 project briefs from that are kind of modeled on real projects from my career, real clients and things. And it'll include, uh, here's some info about the client and their audience and what they're trying to accomplish. And here's what you're supposed to design. And then I'm telling the students, go design it and send me what you create. And then every month, I'm going to have a live webinar where I look at those student projects and critique them, give them feedback, give them ideas, and look at how they're using those design principles that they learned about in the course. So it kind of comes full circle, hopefully. Uh, the, the practice projects are probably the most work of the entire course. I mean, the course is pretty big, but creating actual design projects takes a lot of time. So I'm, I don't know if people are actually going to do it. I haven't released it yet. But my hope is that people will really invest into practicing because reading about design and, you know, watching somebody design is not the same thing as going and designing yourself. Yeah. You know, practice is such a key part of improving and that I really pushed that hard in the course and I'm going to release that uh, within the next couple of weeks. So we'll see what happens. But my goal is that from a learning strategy that you know, people are kind of getting all of those different sides in order to improve. They're getting the knowledge, they're getting a little bit of perspective and, you know, some advice from someone with more experience, and then they're getting practice. So those three components, hopefully combined, will help them improve. So is the course self-paced or do you drip out the content? It's completely self-paced. Okay, cool. So how do you make sure that people aren't getting overwhelmed? I know you mentioned that earlier, if, if it, they have access to, uh, to everything at once. Yeah, so the course is broken up into topics. I call them sprints, mm -hmm. which is where the name of the course comes <laughs> from. So each topic is a sprint. And so, for example, there's a typography sprint, and it has a overview video that kind of summarizes everything that, is, that I teach about that topic, and then a written lesson which is pretty long, and then a video demonstration. So people can focus on each topic one at a time. And uh, the course that I built, the course website that I built also has a mark as complete feature. So yeah. when you complete a lesson or a video, you can mark it off and it kind of tracks how many total there are to complete. So you can kind of keep your place. Um, and so my goal is hopefully people are focusing on each topic one at a time right. rather than just trying to speed through everything you know, or jumping around, you know, it feels like if you can mark off one topic, then you've made some progress, then you can start the next topic later. So hopefully that's not too overwhelming because each topic is kind of self-contained. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So I'm assuming your course is hosted on WordPress and you have everything, you built everything up that way. Yes. Yes. I uh, built a custom theme for it, used a handful of plugins to build my own course website. Yes. Very nice. Now you mentioned the students are able to mark off their progress. How are you able to track student completion rates and engagement and all of that? So right now it's kind of limited. I'm using a plugin that it basically just adds a button to the end of every lesson or video that I post and then it tallies up the number that have been completed and it shows a chart 
on kind of the table of contents page. And so the plugin is, it's a really amazing plugin, actually. I love how simple it is. What's it called? It's called WP Complete. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it's built by a friend of mine, Paul, Paul Jarvis, Jarvis. Yeah. and Zach Gilbert. <laughs> and they're so smart. Uh, I love the the plugin because it just, it's like, as soon as you add it to the site, it's like it makes your website into a course. It's really cool. Um, but, you know, right now the, the plugin is a little bit limited. All it really does is show whether somebody clicked the button to mark it as complete. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have much data about how long people spent in each lesson or you know, how long, how much of the video they actually watched, things like that. So that's kind of my next step. I'm thinking about maybe exploring whether I can do some analytics to measure some of those things. But uh, the first, before I get to that stuff, I just need to spend a lot more time talking to my students about their experience using the course. So uh, since launch just closed, I haven't done that yet. But my next step is just to email every single student personally and say, how's it going? What can I do to help? Um, Do you have any questions for me? And just you know, put a lot of focus on helping them grow and learn and improve. And then, you know, the the analytics and the metrics side of that will come later, I think. Okay, cool. So what results have you, so your, I know you just launched, so this is a little bit early, but have you yeah. seen any type of results or comments from your learners that let you know that, you know, their things are going well and they're they're achieving with your course? Yeah, I have. So I have a couple, these are testimonials on the sales page, but a couple of quotes from the early access students who were very positive and said that it's helping them improve. And then I've also gotten a couple notes just here and there, like a couple tweets and a couple emails from students who bought since last week. And they're saying, yeah, this is great. This is helping me improve, but nothing uh, too concrete yet. I still need to kind of reach out to everyone. And then I'm also looking at my dashboard here. I have kind of, you know, that WP complete plugin that shows how many students have completed lessons. Mm-hmm. I have two students who have completed every lesson, which is pretty cool uh, so far. And then looks like everybody else is still in progress. Some haven't completed any. It's kind of all across the range. So yeah. um, one of the things that I'm going to really need to do is reach out to those students who haven't completed anything find and find out why and really talk to them a little more. Okay. Jared, I'm curious, what did you price your course at? Yeah, full price is $199, $200. Okay. And then uh, I had the 10% off coupon during the first few days and a 15% to my list. So people paid anywhere from, I think, 169 to 179 for the most part. A couple paid full price right at the end of registration. Cool. All right. Before we get to the final three questions, I just want to ask, and this is a question for the listeners. For anyone out there who's listening and they want to build an online business, so maybe they're where you were when you said, you know what, I'm tired of working for someone else. I want to take my skills and I want to benefit from them. But Mm -hmm. they don't have a website and they're not a designer. Where do you recommend they start? Hmm. Well, I think the biggest thing to start is with your audience. You know, think about who are you trying to help? Who are you trying to serve? That's really what starts everything off. You know, you don't need a website to figure out who you want to help, right? Mm -hmm. You don't need to be a designer to do any of the research stuff that I do, right? Anybody can do that. So really, I would say start by thinking about who are the people that you want to help out and who are the people that you feel like you are uniquely equipped to serve, you know, and think about those people, go and research them, learn about their situation and their pain points and their frustrations and their 
their hopes and their goals, you know, and research that stuff. And then make your decisions about how you're going to start your business based on what you find. You know, you might find that, you know, if you're going to focus on designers as an audience, you need a really nice website, right? Because designers want to see that, you know, what you're talking about, right? But if you're working with programmers, you might not need quite as fancy of a website because programmers tend to value other things than designers do, right? So just depending on your audience, you can kind of make decisions, smart decisions about what you need. And I think that as a, especially when you're starting out creating your own business, it can be kind of overwhelming. Like starting anything new can be overwhelming, right? There's so many things that you have to learn. There's so many things that you're supposed to do. And there's all these people telling you, do this and do that. And if you ignore this strategy, if you don't do webinars, your business is going to fail. And if you don't have a newsletter, your business is going to fail. Well, just see what works for your business, you know, and for your audience. I'm sorry. Yeah, see what works for your audience rather than just following every recipe. You need to have a reason for everything you do rather than just following these tips that you see out there. And uh, actually, after I shut down my first business, I think this is an interesting point to add to this. Uh, my first, that uh, online gradebook for teachers, I wrote a postmortem article, which is kind of a cliche now, but I wrote a, an article saying like what happened with it and why I shut it down and sharing all the numbers and everything. Mm-hmm. And I put it on Hacker News and it blew up and I got tons of comments. And if you're familiar with Joel Spolsky, he uh, is has founded a lot of really big startups. And he put a comment on Hacker News and called me the guy who followed all the guru's advice and still failed. And I think that is such a great like line because you can, you can follow all the best practices, but if you miss the really important parts of understanding your audience, then you're still going to fail because the, the, the best practices really are based on a solid foundation, you know, and if you don't have that key point about understanding people, then following, you know, having a podcast and doing webinars and having a blog and a gorgeous website and a really well-designed product is not going to help you if nobody wants it, right? Yep. So I would say focus on that stuff first. I like talking to you, Jared. So <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Likewise. You've got some sage advice there. So we are down to the final three questions. First one is an easy one. What is next for you? Anything exciting coming up? Next for me is pretty boring, actually. I'm uh, just looking at data and trying to figure out uh, how my students are doing in my new course. And then in a, I guess in a few months, I'll probably reopen it again. I haven't decided when yet. But uh, yeah, that'll be the next thing is reopening the course for any, for more students. So cool. I guess by the time this podcast comes out, it could be around the corner. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, we'll see. Yeah, that's the next thing. So you can find out about my course if you want to check out the details or how I built it. Uh, the URL for that is studiofellow.com slash theory dash sprints. And that's the sales page. And then the course itself is on a subdomain on a separate WordPress site. Okay. And that goes into my next question was where can people find out more about oh, yeah. you and your work? So you just yeah, kinda... that's the, yeah, sorry. I kind of jumped the gun there. Yeah. <laughs> that's, okay. that's the, that's the sales page for the course. Uh, you can also check out, I have a newsletter and articles and stuff on my website, which is just studiofellow.com. And I'm also on Twitter if you want to ever chat or anything, uh, hit me up. I'm at Studio Fellow. Cool. I'll be sure to share all of those links in the show notes. All right. Thank you. Last question. What's your why? Why do you get up and do this work every day? My why? I think uh, I think my big goal for my business is to try to remove some of the stigma when it comes to creative work. I think that 
You know, when I first started out as a designer, there there's this kind of joke that people say in ad agencies that every designer wishes they could be a painter. Like every designer is just a failed artist who sold out and went to work at an ad agency. And the one for copywriters is every copywriter is a failed novelist. Like every single one of them has a half-written novel manuscript in their their desk drawer at work, right? And I, I just think that is so sad that people see creative work as in that way, like that design and marketing and copywriting aren't valid pursuits. Yeah. And I think that design is really valuable to people. And even though it's not maybe quite the same as art, it has different, it still has a, a value, even if it's a little bit different from art. So one of the things, you know, early in my career, I really struggled with that kind of balance, you know, trying to balance my creative ambitions with, you know, making money and making a living. And that's a really hard thing to navigate. So my big goal, I think for, you know, especially for this audience, for designers is to kind of help them get over that hurdle of feeling like their creative work is worthwhile and, you know, seeing the value that they can create for people out there. So that's really my big goal. That's why I, why I do this, why I work for designers, because I think that is just so important. I love it. Jared, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing all of your insights. This has been super valuable, and I know that people are going to really love it. Well, thank you, Janelle. This has been a blast. Thanks so, so much for having me. I told you it was going to be a Design Geek episode. I told you. And it was. And it was amazing. So much stuff. I don't get to talk design that much. And it was cool to talk to a designer. So thank you. Thank you, Jared, for coming on to the show and sharing your experience and your expertise and just being vulnerable and telling us the things that you didn't know. If you want to learn more about Jared and find out about his work and check out his course and all of that good stuff, because he's a good guy, head over to zencourses.co slash 056 for episode 56. Once again, that's zencourses.co slash 056, and you'll find all of the goodies over there. Speaking of goodies, I've got a couple of things. Well, I don't know. You can determine if they're goodies or not, but a couple of news points that I want to share with you. The first one is season two is wrapping up. There are just three more episodes left for season two. Hate to break it to you. Yeah, I know. I know. So stay tuned. Um, There's going to be some good stuff coming up next week. We are going to have the amazing Jane Hamill on the show. I am still on high from my conversation with Jane. She was just, she's the best. So that's coming up next week. So be sure to tune in. And last piece of news for you. The Zen Courses show is now on Patreon. So if you love the show and you want to support it to make sure that it keeps going, if it's added value to your life, I invite you to check us out on Patreon. There's some some good stuff coming up in season three. And I have loved being here and doing this. And I want to share so many more interviews with course creators with you and do some fun things. So if you want to be a partner and a patron for the show, check us out. You can find out more by going to zencourses.co slash Patreon, which is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Once more, zencourses.co slash Patreon. And take a look at the reward tiers. There's some very cool stuff that you can get access to if you decide to contribute. Can't wait to see 
you as part of the Zen Courses community. If you can't remember any of those links, that's okay. I'll be sure to include that Patreon link in the show notes as well. All right, it is that time. My name is Janelle Allen. This has been the Zen Courses Show. Thank you so much for hanging with me for one more week and lending me your ears. I will see you next time.